As a young backpacker in Rome, Trish Clark found there was no room at the youth hostel, so she tried staying in a guest room at a convent and liked it. I remember seeing a very, very large typewriter behind which sat a very, very old nun. And thank goodness she smiled. Coming up, we'll hear how monasteries and convents might be just the place for a good night's sleep in some prime locations around Europe. And we'll immerse ourselves in one of the best cities for experiencing the atmosphere of the medieval world, Toledo, the ancient capital of Spain. Toledo, you just have to get lost. The beauty of Toledo is that, getting lost. Plus, British actress Joanna Lumley joins us to share how her family history takes her back to India, Nepal, and even hard-to-visit Bhutan. Oh, it was just a blissful place. I think it's changing quickly nowadays. So again, I would say to anybody who wants to travel, travel now because it's changing. The towns are getting bigger. The hotels are getting chicer. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Guides from Spain let us in on the medieval magic you'll find not far from Madrid in Toledo. And we'll hear how convents and monasteries are getting into the hotel business in Europe. That's coming up in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with someone whose fans call her something of a goddess, not only for her role as Patsy Stone in the British comedy Absolutely Fabulous, but also for her outspoken leadership as a champion of many human rights causes. Actress Joanna Lumley's work with the Gurkha Justice Campaign in the UK even earned her the status of national treasure in Nepal. Lately, she's also started hosting some remarkable travel documentaries. Last year, Joanna joined us to talk about her adventure up the length of the Nile River. She's also recently filmed a three-part special on Greece. Joanna Lumley's a natural-born traveler, and we're honored to have her back with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, Rick, it's such a pleasure. And I think I was practically born in a suitcase. I was born in Kashmir the year before India gained her independence. And from then, I traveled back, and I traveled out to Hong Kong, where I lived for a few years, and traveled back, then traveled out to Malaysia, where we lived for a bit, because my father was with the British Army, which is the Indian Army, the British Army in India, and his regiment was the Gurkha Regiment, which is, I don't know whether you've heard of the Gurkhas out in the U.S., but... I, I have a Gurkha knife. When I went to Nepal, I bought a Gurkha knife, yeah. and it's one of my prized well, souvenirs. A cookery, that curved, <laughs> deadly knife. I love it. Now, what is it about the Gurkhas? Who are they, first of all? The Gurkhas are the hillmen of Nepal. And 200 years ago, next year, there was a huge skirmish with the, the Gurkha, the, the Nepalese, as they were, fighting the British. And they respected each other so much that the Gurkhas, at the end of the battle, when there were sort of corpses lying all over the place, the leaders of the Nepali army came up to the British and said, we like the way you fight. Um, can we fight for you? And that was it. That was the beginning <laughs> of this extraordinary marriage. They're not part of the Commonwealth. It's their voluntary service every year. That's what they want to do. And they join up, and it's the finest job you can have in Nepal is to belong to, to become a British Gurkha. And my father was an officer with the Gurkhas, yeah. Fearless warriors. Isn't there a famous saying, if a man says he's not afraid of dying, he's either lying or he's a Gurkha? That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been really um, much appreciated by the old-school British Empire. And even today, a, a year or two ago, I was in London checking out the construction for the Olympic Stadium there, uh, for the Olympics, yes. and it was all guarded by Gurkhas. By Gurkhas. They are adored over here by all, actually, by the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Everybody's got somebody who has fought with the Gurkhas in the past. And You want them on your side if you're in a war. You do, and uh, they are so frightening that their reputation goes ahead of them like a kind of bow wave, and people go, oh, no, the Gurkhas are coming, quite often just resign and put their hands up in the air. Joanna, by the Gurkhas, you're considered a daughter of Nepal and a, literally a national treasure. They've got some struggles, and you, you empathize with that, and you've helped them. What are their struggles, and, and how have you been involved? The struggles were by some extraordinary anomaly of British law. Although a lot of Commonwealth troops, and I, I, I'm sure that your, your listeners understand what that means, which is this great link-up of old countries which used to be in the, in the British Empire, and the Empire's long gone, but a lot of the, those countries have remained friends with Britain, and their, their troops serve with us and are serving now in Afghanistan, all over the place. But the Gurkhas are not part of the Commonwealth, and they had a completely different deal. So when they had finished their service, they were booted out of the country, whereas other Commonwealth soldiers were allowed to, they had the right to remain or become British or stay there or work in Britain. And it just seemed wrong that the Gurkhas were being treated differently. So a very small group of us decided to take up the cause, took it to the high courts, fought, 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 and gradually got the country on our side, got the press on our side, got Parliament on our side, and got the laws changed. Wow. So um, the Gurkhas are now treated the same, yeah. Good for you. And every every year we have um, our Remembrance Days on November mm -hmm. the 11th. 
at 11 o'clock and it's always the, it's the most solemn occasion practically in the calendar and it's the Queen comes out of the Cenotaph yeah. to honour all the fallen in, in both the great wars. And while England is Christian, the Cenotaph is very careful not to have any religious symbol on it because it's Absolutely a memorial to right. all so the people who died for the All faiths are represented there and all the Commonwealth leaders are there, all of mm. them, and it's it's a terribly moving ceremony actually. Mm. You suddenly think, you know, it's the old rather sort of 60s hippie thing, Rick, which is I wish we could all live in peace together because when we all are making friends, of course we're all different. Of course we've all mm-hmm. got different cultures and ideas and practices mm-hmm. and standards and histories, but we're all so much the same, you know, if only we could live in peace. Boy, your your travels have helped uh, remind people of that. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we talked about your, your father being in the British service. Uh, your grandfather actually uh, had an adventure My mother's in, father, in, indeed. in Bhutan. He was a diplomat and his sort of area where he was, as it were, ambassador to was Tibet, Sikkim, which in those days was an independent country, mm-hmm. not part of India, and Bhutan, which is still an independent country. And the summer months he lived in Tibet, and then it got very, very cold up there on the high plateaus, and he would move down to Gantok, which is in Sikkim. So my mother was brought up there and rode her ponies up in the high hills. I read in 1931 he had to travel all the way to Bhutan to give the king a, a special... Um, a special honor from King George V, yeah. And now, that was a long journey back then in 1931. It was a long journey. My my grandmother went with him. My aunt, my mother was at boarding school in England, too young to go. But my aunt went. They took about 100 pack animals. It was a huge diplomatic venture. Three months through the jungles? Not through the jungles. This is midwinter, so it was through quite a lot of it was through the snow. Oh, my goodness. And Bhutan is like, you know, the highest parts of, of Bhutan are high, high, high. They've got mountains of 25,000 feet. And the low, low, low parts, are, you grow oranges. So... You have a heck of a difference in height and in climate. You retraced that, your grandfather's journey, and what, 65 years later, and you filmed it, and you, you did a documentary film called The Kingdom of the Thunder Dragon. What was that like? What was your impression of Bhutan? That's the name for Bhutan. Oh, it was just a blissful place. I think it's changing quickly nowadays. So again, I would say to anybody who wants to travel, travel now because it's changing. The towns are getting bigger. The hotels are getting chicer, which in many ways is nice, but in many ways it's lovely to see the countries it was. It was a locked-off, hidden kingdom, a vast Himalayan kingdom with great zongs, which are like fortress monasteries planted about the place and tiny villages around the outside, but largely completely empty. It's about the size of Switzerland. Mm. It's got valleys which grow all the medicinal herbs. You can cure yourself from the herbs that you'd pick in the valleys of Bhutan. It's mysterious and friendly and lovely. To this day, I think tourism is quite controlled there, so it's limited who gets in there and so on, but it's opening up to tourism. And you had, with your family connections, it's amazing, you had dinner with, what, the former queen mother of Bhutan? Yes. Now, now she had a connection with your grandfather, or her family did, and they actually, you come back two generations later, what was that like? Just phenomenal. I was so proud, and the warm friendliness they had, because my grandfather was instrumental in keeping Bhutan a separate sovereign nation rather than being annexed into Britain Mm -hmm. because he was advising wherever he went he would say I think this would work this wouldn't and Mm. he said I think it would be sensible to keep Bhutan separate and independent and they've always been grateful to him for that but of course he adored he he was a very great linguist he had 12 or 13 languages the Bhutanese royal family oh it's tremendously complex out there but some of them were Tibetans and of course he knew Tibetans he was a friend of the 13th Dalai Lama And so all these extraordinary stories from a kind of another world, another world. Did they, did they show off? Did you sit and watch uh, athletic competitions? Or? Well, we didn't, they didn't do it for us, but we came in on one of their big ceremonies, which was a, like a four-day fair of feasting and people gathering together and religious dances where they wear beautiful masks, animal masks, rather sort of weird, almost hellish, most of them snarling. And these are supposed to be the faces of demons and gods in the underworld, the other world. And the old people looking at it, I could see in their faces, they truly believed. They were memorizing these extraordinary dancing figures so that when they passed through into the next life that they had recognized them. It was terribly moving and thrilling. They couldn't have treated us more kindly and courteously. I think that, honestly, wherever you are in the world, if you have a good sense of humor and are modest and courteous and bother to learn a few words, just thank you, please, good evening, mm. in their language, even if you struggle, they know you're trying, you know. You can make friends so fast. You know, Joanna, it's beautiful to think these cultural treasures and these beautiful rituals survive, and it's also sort of sad to think that they're embattled as the whole world is becoming homogenized. It's great to go see that, and it's great to support that as we can. Joanna Lumley's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
You may know her for her role as the irrepressible Patsy Stone in the Britcom Absolutely Fabulous. And some of her travel documentaries from British TV are now being distributed in North America, including Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey, a previews posted at athenalearning.com. And Joanna did a TV uh, adventure searching for Noah's Ark. And Joanna, I'm fascinated by Noah's Ark. It's on Mount Ararat, right? Right where Turkey hits Iran. And what did you find? Is there a Noah's Ark? What's going on with that? We had nothing to go on except in the Bible, in the Old Testament. In the Bible, it says, you know, it tells the story of Noah and the flood. And it said the Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. So you go, okay, I don't know anything about anything, but let's take our camera crew and start off just like baby beginners. Where do we go from here? So we went straight out to Mount Ararat and said, is the Ark here? And of course, we met nomadic people there. We met religious people who said, no, it's not here. We met people across the valley who said, this is the shape of the Ark. Look at the shape. This has got timbers on it. These timbers rolled. This must have been Noah's Ark. And then somebody saying, no, no, that's just a mudslide. That's not the Ark. Was the flood here? No, the flood couldn't have reached here. No, the flood could have reached there. Yeah. And we could read of the places where in various accounts they say, no, the ark would have rested here. No, no, the ark would have rested here. There were eight people. It's in this village called Eight. It's down here. It's down there. Hmm. All of these things, it's like anything. Anybody who's reporting after an incident, the story gets turned slightly. Somebody embellishes it. Somebody decides to elaborate on it or claim it for their own. So you have to take it with not a pinch of salt, but with a very broad acceptance, you know. And not stamp on people's beliefs, I think. Joanna, when you look at Mount Ararat, it comes out of the land like Mount Fuji or Mount Rainier, and it's one of these sensational mountains. It's it's the tallest mountain in the area. Yes, it's big, and it's quite a tough one to climb because even though people have climbed far higher than that, you've got to take a deep breath before you set off up Mount Ararat, which has, like a lot of great mountains, the easy-peasy look to it. You go, oh, really? I think <laughs> I could stroll up there before lunch. <laughs> Fatal. Very tough. Regardless of if there is a Noah's Ark up there or not, it is a fascinating part of Turkey to explore. It's completely accessible yes. to go to northeastern Turkey, and there you Absolutely. certainly get away from the tourist, and you, you enjoy a, a very warm welcome. And who knows, you may find a, a big piece of uh, beam or, or hull that uh, goes back uh, thousands of years. With Noah's name carved on it. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring some very interesting corners of the world with Patsy Stone, a.k.a. Joanna Lumley. Absolutely fabulous, Joanna. Thanks for traveling with us. Thank you so much, Rick. And um, from Patsy, tune, sweetie. Thank you. That was, that was fabulous, Rick. I think, uh, Rick, you're fabulous. Thanks, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> DVDs of Joanna's travel series about tracking the source of the Nile River and Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey are available in North America from athenalearning.com. Next, guides from Spain tell us how the ancient capital of Spain is an easy and rewarding day trip from Madrid. And we'll hear how convents and monasteries offer a good option for budget accommodations in many of Europe's prime locales. We're at 877-333-7425. Holy Toledo. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. اسم من هومان مجد است. من دوست دارم با آقای ریک ستیوز مسافرت بکنم. My name is Human Majd and I like to travel with Rick Steves. In Farsi, that would be اسم من هومان مجد است. من دوست دارم با آقای ریک ستیوز مسافرت بکنم.
if there's any place in Spain that has more history and art per square inch than any other place, I would say it is the historic capital, Toledo. Toledo is the historic, the artistic, and the spiritual capital of Spain. The political capital it used to be, but that's moved north to Madrid. We're joined by two Spanish guides, Jorge Roman and Francisco Gloria, and we're going to talk about the historic capital of Spain, Toledo. Francisco and Jorge, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The great introduction to Toledo is from across the gorge at the Parador for the view of the historic capital of Spain. Remember, it's chosen because of its strategic point in a tight bend in the Tahoe River. Francisco, when you stand on the other side of the bank looking over at Toledo, as a Spaniard, what do you see and what do you think? What do you think? What do you see? You see history. You see all the history of Spain in one tiny little village, well, village, city. <laughs> but you can walk across it in 15 minutes. Yes, so it's, it's a city, but for you, mm-hmm. in the United States, that you would call it a small village. Yeah. <laughs> we call it a city. Uh, you have to think that Toledo, it was a perfect, strategically speaking, perfect uh, as a commercial route. And the Romans, they were not as stupid, and they knew how to do those things, so they created Toledo as a stop. Technically, it's very easy to defend because it's in a cliff, you have a river, there's no way to get into Toledo unless you have a bridge. So it is a very, technically speaking, perfect for that location. So on three sides of the city, it is this incredible steep gorge that you could never get you know, your troops up and the river mm-hmm. as a natural moat. And on one side, you have a very solid wall. So it's a, it's a nicely fortified city. Romans really knew how to construct and choose the paint. Now, Jorge, when you think of Toledo, but you live in Madrid. Yeah. Uh, Toledo was the historic capital. Why did the capital move up to Madrid and abandon Toledo? We have to go back to the times of Philip II. His father, Charles I, the first emperor that we had over there, he was extremely religious. And Toledo, believe it or not, nowadays is still the second Catholic city in the world. In those days, it was still very powerful with the Catholic Church. So Charles I led the church to be involved very much in the political affairs. Philip II, his son, was also very Catholic, but he was wiser than his father, and he knew how to separate politics from religion. With, oh. the, excuse, with the excuse of the construction of the Escorial Monastery. In so the he wanted to Madrid. separate the church and the political yeah. power, so but, he had to move away from the cathedral. Yeah, and, but he didn't know how. Right. So we had a battle with, uh, against the French, mm-hmm. San Quentin battle. We won, and uh, a monastery was ordered to be built the monastery of Escorial in the northwest of Madrid, with the excuse of supervising those works. Philip II decided to move the court from Toledo to Madrid. So he built his palace in what we think of as the royal palace in Madrid. Actually, he moved inside of the old Alcázar, the old Moorish castle that was in Madrid. In Madrid, okay. While he was building just by the side of it, the new one. Now, when we think of Toledo, maybe the political power moved out, but still the religious power and the, the great art of Spain is, oh, yeah. is, is in yeah, Toledo. Is. When you think of religious power in Spain and Toledo, you think of the cathedral. Tell us about the cathedral and the religious power of the city. Well, it's the fourth cathedral in the world. Fourth in, in size. size? Yeah, the first one is right. uh, St. Peter's yeah. in Rome, St. Paul's in London, Sevilla, right, and Toledo. Wow, two out of the top four in Spain. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, and besides that is the, the art in there. Um, Because the the sacristy in the cathedral has enough art to put a museum on the map, really. uh, I mean, the the Greco collection they have in there is simply, you know, breathtaking. Um, Any corner, I mean, the the monstrance of the cathedral is uh, 18 kilos of solid gold with 120 kilos, I think, of solid silk. So 40 pounds of gold. For the monstrance, the monstrance would be the uh, the big decorative container of the wafer for the communion. Exactly, and it's taken out once a year on the uh, Corpus Christi Day in a procession. And, uh, well, not only the sacristy and the monstrance, uh, all the art in there, and there is a part over there which is called El Transparente, the transparent, that was built in the 1700s, and that was really a kind of, um, of an architectural challenge. A challenge is right, because the church was dark and medieval, yeah. but in the Baroque sure. age, they needed more light. So what did True. they do? They opened the hole on just the wall. Opened, they gave it a skylight. Yep. And they've yeah. got it just encrusted with little Baroque cupids and babies and all Actually, sorts of Actually, um, it's an altarpiece, which, yeah. is, which is built in there, everything in marble. It's one of the most uh, lavish pieces of uh, church It's absolutely fantastic. It's one of those, when you look at it from the inside, you say, wow. <laughs> 
Jorge, when you think about Toledo, of course, you've got the religious history and the art, but you've also got some military history there. The Alcazar, I think, is uh, symbolic to Spaniards of, of some of the recent military uh, challenges of the country. Yes, Rick, you're right. Let me tell you, Alcazar is an Arabic word that means the castle. Alcazar, the castle. Yeah, the castle. Okay. So, in the old days, it was located in the highest point of the city mm-hmm. just to overlook the surrounding. Uh, it was a very strategic location in the old times. Nowadays, if we come to the uh, point that uh, military talking, for example, the civil war in Spain, civil war in Toledo only took about a couple of months. Okay. Because for the Republicans, I mean, Republicans in Spain are the leftists. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> for the Repu- that is, that's an important thing because yeah. in, in the United States, when you think Republicans, you yeah. think to the right and no. the Democrats be to the left. But in Spain, when you hear Republicans, those would be on the, the left. left wing. Yeah. Quite okay. left. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, w- it was going to be a kind of a very good propaganda for them at the beginning of the uh, Civil War to have Toledo as their site. Uh-huh. So that was a very big battle over there, but mm-hmm. only at the very beginning of the Civil War took about a couple of months. And who to won? Ha- who Franco won. Franco won. So Franco it was, a, it was a, a fascist bastion. But today, when we look at the new museum there, yeah. it tells the story of military history in Spain. True. It was right open about a year ago. And it's a brand new museum. It's the mm-hmm. best museum, I think, in Spain for military history. But what was interesting to me is almost nothing about the Civil War. It's still a hot topic. It's hard to cover the Civil War in the museums. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's still a very hot because topic. You have to be very careful. It's, yeah. it, it's so interesting for me. It's been a long time ago, but there still are difficult feelings in families. And, it's, and to do a museum with a very candid approach, a very we honest need... approach to the Civil War, maybe a little more time has to go by. Yeah, we need some education on that issue, yeah. Toledo is the spiritual capital of Spain, and it's the city we're visiting right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Spanish tour guides Jorge Roman and Francisco Gloria. You can share your own impressions and travel tales from Toledo with us in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Francisco, if you're going from Madrid to Toledo, how do you do it? The best way, it's, uh, you go by train. Yeah, The, the new bullet train goes yeah, through. The bullet train, uh, what, 30, 30 20, minutes? 25 minutes. 25 minutes. I mean, so, so it's really a bedroom community of Madrid now, yeah, if you want is, to. Yeah, it is. In fact, it is. Yeah. And, and yeah. if you're thinking about souvenirs and things to buy and things to eat in Toledo, uh, Jorge, what would be some things to remember? Things to buy in Toledo, by all means, are the knives and the Damascene jewelry. What is Damascene? The name Damascene comes from Damascus, which is the type of jewelry used to be crafting Damascus in the from old Damascus. days. From Damascus? Yeah, and it's like uh, uh, gold leaves encrusted so in iron. this was an art form from Damascus yep. in uh, Syria? Yep. And it came all the way across Africa with the rampaging, expanding uh, Muslim hordes that were going to bring their religion into Christian Europe. And uh, they left that uh, art form to this day. And people are pounding. So it is pounding carefully. Yeah, the gold leaves inside of the, uh, or over the, uh, another thicker leaf of uh, iron. So you got this beautiful metalwork. Yep. And you've got beautiful beautiful knives and swords. And if you buy a sword, you can't carry it under the airplane back home. That's something I learned. Uh, You can't. You have to to check it. Yeah, you have to check it, yeah. And then then what about uh, the the typical sweets from Toledo? The marzipan. Marzipan. It's uh, sour almonds with sugar in different shapes. Different kinds of marzipan. Yeah. You've got some with uh, pine nuts. True, yeah. Some some with almonds. Yeah, but that is the rich style. I mean, in the old days, it was just sour... Sour almonds and sugar. To me, one of the most unique things about Toledo is just getting lost in its back streets. This city is so... If any city in Europe is labyrinthine, if any city causes us a challenge in our guidebooks to make a map that you can follow, <laughs> it is Toledo. That's it. How do you... What's your trick, Francisco, for navigating Toledo? Uh, Toledo, you just have to get lost. Yeah, I mean, true. the beauty of Toledo is getting lost and finding not your way around. Enjoy being lost. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can't go too far because you're surrounded it, by a river. I mean, if you <laughs> go to the right, you're going to fall in a river. So it's not a big deal. Then turn right. The beauty of Toledo is that, getting lost, getting uh, the smallest streets. Okay, get me lost, Francisco, and what would I find? What little surprise might reward us for having that well, adventurous spirit? Uh, when you go through Toledo, suddenly you're going to turn to the right or to the left, and you're going to find a small convent. I would recommend you to knock on the door, and obviously the nun is not going to come out. You have, I think, in America, in English, you call it a lazy Susan, something like that. The nun will tell you, Ave Maria Purissima, and you have to answer, Sin pecado concebida, which means that, hello, Holy Mary. You don't, you don't see the nun. You don't see the nun. You, you don't get to see this her. This is a cloistered nun. Yeah. It is a cloistered yeah. nun. So and you're, you're going to knock, and what is she going to say? Ave Maria Purissima. So what does that mean? Holy Mary. Hello, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> hello, Mary. <laughs> yeah, and what you have to answer, 
sin pecado concebida, which means that she was uh, born without sin. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, yeah. Say that again. Sin pecado concebida. Sin pecado, sin, yeah. concebida. Okay. okay, wow. And that is the polite way. So she was to, born without sin, and then she'll let you in, and, and you'll get some no, of No, no, no. <laughs> she will not let you in. She will, what do you want? And she, they will sell you some of this homemade marzipan that they oh, do. Oh, they do. Yep. So the nuns so, are making the marzipan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these so. culinary gastronomy things that take time, that we don't have time to cook them, all of these nuns, they're making so them. So the nuns... What is the, the famous labora et or ora et, ora et labora? labora. Ora et labora. So ora there's et labora. work and pray. Yes. Yeah. And uh, their work might be... Yeah. It's the best way to eat. The, the, <laughs> all right. Jorge, if yeah. you're walking in the back streets trying to get lost in Toledo, mm-hmm. what else might you find? Rick, um, unfortunately, I have to say, I don't get lost in Toledo anymore. I've been there so many times. Oh, but let do? me tell okay. you Let's say thing. I get lost. I, I, I am lucky enough to stay there overnight sometimes with uh-huh. my groups. Yeah. And believe it or not, I still do it. It's yeah. like uh, when it's dark, yeah. no tourists around, yeah. I just go out. Just to wander. Just to wander. Just to see the streets empty. You know, that's some of my, anywhere in Europe, that's some of my favorite things to do. Is just really. to, I've done my sightseeing, and yeah. I just go out after dark. The tourists yeah. are back in the hotels. Yeah. Yeah. And just wander. If the weather is not just sit anywhere yeah. and just have a look a little around, you know, and uh, you get the flavor. Of you the feel place. safe in the dark back streets of Toledo? In Toledo? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's, yeah. No, there's no problem with no, that. And you no, could no. find uh, so many magical little corners. With, oh, with, true, yeah. yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're imagining being in Toledo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Donald is on the phone from Richmond in Indiana. Donald, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. We're going to be going to Spain in about three weeks, and we're going to be staying in Madrid. And I wondered what we were interested in, in looking at uh, Toledo, obviously, and the period of um, conviviality, if you will, between uh, Islam, Catholic, and Judaism there. And I wanted a particular look at the synagogue of El Transito and see if that is still a functional synagogue. Is that now been converted to a church? Is it a museum? Now it's just the Sephardic Museum. doesn't work as a synagogue any longer. But just around the corner of that, I mean, you can go inside and visit it, of course, and you will see everything. It's a beautiful place, very well displayed. But just around the corner of uh, El Transito, you have another tiny little synagogue. Uh, it was a church afterwards. Now it's just a monument to visit, which is called Santa Maria La Blanca, Saint Mary La Blanca, of the yeah. White. So both of them are together in the Jewish neighborhood, but none of them works nowadays as a synagogue, just a museum. If you are a Jewish-American traveling in, yeah. in Toledo and you want to find some Judaica or some association that is interested in the Jewish heritage, yeah. is there something like that in Toledo? Um, no, there's not. But you can find a lot of information. When you go to Toledo, you must start the visit at the, uh, the square in the very top of the city, which is called the Sokodover Square. And over there, the tourist information office, they do have loads of good information about Judaism yeah. in Toledo. Because while there apparently there's not much of a Jewish community living there now, there's a tremendous history uh, of Jews, True. Muslims, and Christians living yeah. together in Toledo, yeah, yeah. quite famously. Yeah, well, Toledo is also known as the Western Jerusalem. The Western Jerusalem. Also, always be known like oh. that. Yeah. Cordoba, likewise, was an area of Judaism, uh, as Toledo was before the diaspora. Yep. It's still worthwhile to see Cordoba. Yes. The you have to go. If you go to Cordoba, go to the House of Sepharad. It's a very good institution down there that they have a very well done job in the all the culture. Uh, fascinating. Which train station we're going to be in Madrid? We advise we take one of these bus tours or just take the speed train from, I guess, at Santa Maria. A station down to Toledo? Atocha, railway station. Yeah. Atocha. Do- Donald, from uh, Madrid, you've got trains going every hour or so. They yeah. take uh, half, 30 minutes or something from uh, Atocha to Toledo. Okay. Very yeah. good. That's, the, that's yeah. the fast way to get there. And it's yeah. quite, a, it's just, just to ride in the Ave in Spain is a great experience. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you need reservations well in advance, or can you get the train tickets right there? No, you just go there and get the train tickets. If you go very, First time in the morning, you might be, you might have some trouble. But just go, you know, like if you go at ten, you will be there by eleven in the cent- in the heart of the city. So it's not a problem. Very good. Well, okay. Thank you. Thanks, Donald. Have a great time on your next trip to Spain. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Toledo with two tour guide friends of mine, Francisco Glaria and Jorge Roman. So we've talked about many dimensions of Toledo, but we haven't really talked about the beautiful art, especially by El Greco. El Greco. Yeah. Greco. Francisco, when you think of uh, El Greco, what do you think of? 
Oh, uh, for the people who doesn't really know El Greco, the paintings of El Greco are the ones that are people that are like stretched, very thin and very, very tall. And El Greco, he has his, one of his most beautiful paintings. It's uh, the burial of the Count of Orgaz that it's in Toledo. You have to go to a small church that is the Church of Santo Tomé, and there is where you're going to find it. Uh, this type of paintings at the beginning, they, they didn't kind of like them. Today, we appreciate them very much because... Uh, it's quite trendy. It is, because yeah. it's... El Greco. You know, it is so... It's a so... little bit futuristic. I mean, it's like modern, and it was from four, five hundred years ago. Yeah, right? it's... Right after well, the Renaissance, Mannerist. Exactly. And it's, it, these figures are like little flickering flames. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you know, it has like a symbol, uh, you know, in Pentecostes, in Christianism, when mm-hmm. Jesus Christ dies, uh, these flames that come on top of the heads of the apostles. So it's more or less that type of movement of flames. And yeah, it is. everything has to do with religion, funerals. It is so beautiful. And it's, to see it in situ, in where it was designed, when yeah. you see the burial of the Count Orgaz right there in the church where El Greco was hired mm-hmm. to make it. To do it. So, so it's... Yeah. Jorge, when you're going to enjoy El Greco and understand El Greco in the context of Toledo, mm-hmm. what do you think? Toledo wouldn't be what it is without El Greco, and El Greco wouldn't have been what he is now without the city of Toledo. You know, you, you know that uh, El Greco was commissioned to buy a painting for the Escorial Monastery by the monarch at the time, and the monarch at the time hated it. No, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, and um, he, he wanted to be part of the, of the painter of the court at the time, but he was refused by the monarch. Why? Because the monarch hated the painting that he was commissioned to paint. For... So that's not a good idea when you're trying to get work from the monarch. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but I mean, he became so famous in Toledo that uh, look what he did. You know? El Greco was famous for making one of the very first landscape paintings, which is a painting of Toledo with yeah, that beautiful the view, stormy the clouds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's, uh, that's one thing great about Toledo is just mm-hmm. the views. El Greco yeah. appreciated the views, and we can appreciate the views. And not only that, is that the, he really painted what you could see nowadays. Well, that's one thing that you're struck by when you look at an El Greco painting is how little Toledo has changed. Yeah, hasn't changed. Physically, when you look at Toledo from across the gorge, yeah. it's the Toledo that mm-hmm. El Greco saw. And if you stay in Toledo after dark, when all of the tourists go back to Madrid, mm-hmm. you can appreciate the city sure. in a lot of ways yeah. like El Greco did. Yeah. Jorge Roman and Francisco Gloria, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about the great city of Toledo in España. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Thanks. If waking to the sound of a nun's choir singing hymns down the hall is your idea of heaven, you'll be glad to know there are plenty of options for being a guest at historic convents, monasteries, and seminaries all over Europe. We'll hear how religious institutions offer an attractive alternative to hotels and B&Bs from the author of a series of guidebooks that take you inside the cloisters for a good night's sleep and a decent breakfast. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. If you think it's getting just too expensive to find a comfortable, quiet night's sleep in the top sites of Europe, there's an alternative you probably didn't know about that Trish Clark would like to recommend. She's the author of a series of guidebooks to accommodations at convents, monasteries, and seminaries in Europe. Her Good Night and God Bless series recommends places to stay in Austria, Czech Republic, and Italy. And Volume 2 covers France, the UK, and Ireland. Her latest is an e-book guide to staying along the Camino de Santiago in France and Spain. Trish, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rick. Tell us about the first time you ever slept in a convent. Well, it happened some decades ago, actually, and I was at the end of a working holiday in London, and I decided to spend a week in Rome on my way back home to Australia. I planned to, to really let my hair down, to have lots of fun, go out at night, see all the sights. But when I arrived at the hostel that I'd planned to stay in, much to my disappointment, I was told that they were completely booked out. However, I think fearing that I was about to burst into a flood of tears, the manager told me not to worry and that he would ring the convent up the road. 
Well, Rick, I can tell you, I was very worried because I hadn't long left school and having been taught by nuns, the last thing I wanted to do was to spend any part of my holiday with them. However, I didn't have any money and so therefore I I couldn't afford a hotel, so I had no choice at all and I soon found myself wandering up the Via Sistina, wandering up the hill to this wretched convent and I was imagining all sorts of terrible things, that there were going to be rigid rules, that I'd have to be up at six in the morning to attend Mass and uh, I'd forgotten the words to grace before meals years ago, so I was very concerned when I found myself at the front door. Anyway, I took a couple of deep breaths and pressed the buzzer, and uh, before I could change my mind, the door sprung open, and I ventured inside, and I noticed that I was in a very airy, marble-tiled foyer, black and white tiles on the floor, and there was a lovely, wide, grand marble staircase leading upstairs, and on the left-hand side was a reception area, and I remember seeing a very, very large typewriter, behind which sat a very, very old nun. And thank goodness she smiled, and uh, I started to feel better immediately. Now, she didn't speak a word of English, and I didn't speak a word of Italian, of course, but we managed, and it wasn't long before I had the key to my room in my pocket. And as I turned to wander up the steps, she called me back, and she handed me a piece of paper. And later, when I looked, uh, I noticed that she'd written down all the cheap restaurants in, uh, in the area. So I walked upstairs, got to my room, opened the door, and again I I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, the room was only small, but it seemed to have everything I needed, and it was absolutely spotlessly clean. I soon got over my trepidation about sleeping in a bed that was once occupied by a nun, and uh, the next morning I I was woken by the sound of the most beautiful music, and I realised that it was coming from the chapel and the nuns were singing hymns during morning mass. When the singing stopped, breakfast was ready. And this was another revelation. I mean, I I walked down to the dining room and it was beautifully set up with white linen and the cutlery shone. And young postulants were doing the breakfast. And it was a time of day that they obviously relished because they chatted away where they could and they obviously enjoyed talking to people from all over the world. And I can remember them bringing these big baskets full of the most fragrant bread rolls and placing them on each table and this was followed by huge silver pots of the most delicious milky coffee. I was quite unsophisticated then and it was only some years later that I realised that this was actually cafe latte. (laughs) It was really strange. I found myself quite enjoying this experience and uh, at the end of the week I was really sorry to leave but I found myself seeking out these places whenever I travelled overseas But the interesting thing is that a couple of years ago, I had to update this convent for the book, of course. So I went back only to discover that nothing much had really changed. I mean, I I knocked at the door or I I rang the buzzer and the door sprung open and I walked in and I looked to the left and there was a very old nun sitting (laughs) behind a new computer. It wasn't the same one, I'm sure. What decade or what year was that first visit? Well, this would have been in the uh, 1970s. In the 1970s, I think I did the same exact thing. The youth hostel was full, and they said, go to the convent or go to the monastery. And you did? And I thought, you know, just like you, uh, curfews and uh, all this kind of... uh, Well, there was a curfew then. There was a curfew, yeah. But it was a beautiful Mm. experience. And you went on to write a book about this, and now... You've got two volumes, and you list all the different convents and monasteries and different religious accommodations all over. One volume is for Austria, Czech Republic, and Italy, and the other one is for France, the UK, and Ireland. Yes, that's right. These places are everywhere, and people don't know about them. It's rags to riches for a backpacker, and today, even if you're not a backpacker, it provides a very, sometimes austere, but as you mentioned, very clean and very friendly and very comfortable, if basic, alternative to fancy hotels. Well, I find that they generally provide cheap, clean, safe and well-located accommodation. And when I travel, that's all I want. And I find that uh, I stay in them when I'm traveling on my own, particularly uh, when I'm traveling with my children or with my girlfriends. We always seek out these places and it's always a treat to find a new one. There are hundreds of convent and monastery guest houses in France alone. The Maison du Seminaire down in Nice is one of my favorites. And I remember spending a week there and making this my base as I researched other convent and monastery accommodation in the area. And it was a most pleasant time because the monastery, the seminary itself, or the guest house itself, 
actually faces the Bay of Angels and the views from the front-facing window are over the beach and over the bay and the ferry to Corsica sails past the front window and I couldn't help thinking when I was staying there whether whether the glorious views would have provided inspiration for the trainee priests mm. or may possibly have been a source of major distraction and I I figure it may have been the latter because the seminary did have to close down, didn't it? That's that's right. I would imagine you've had cases where you can actually enjoy the Gregorian chants or some of the traditional music that has been sung in these cathedrals for, for a thousand years. Yes, that's right. There's, there's a little village, a lovely little village, which I'm sure you know, called Solem, S-O-L-E-S-M-E-S, and it's not far from Le Mans, and there are two magnificent monasteries here, one for monks and one for nuns, and this order has been credited with reviving the old medieval music of the church, the Gregorian chant. Mm. And you can hear the chanting in either of the churches uh, during the various services during the day. As, as you know, the Gregorian chant is its almost an emotional thing when you listen to monks and nuns mm. chanting. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Trish Clark. Her book is Good Night and God Bless. And Trish, these places uh, sort of originated as part of Christian hospitality. In the old days, they would just offer uh, wayfarers and pilgrims a roof over their head, I would imagine. But they've evolved yes, now, right. and, and they're actually in a position where they need to raise revenue. And, you know, the traditional sources of revenue, farming or whatever, you encounter that in the history of these monasteries where they would make perfume or they would make some kind of medicine or they would farm. Yes. But now they are innkeepers in the 21st century. Yes, well, well, they still do all the other things as well. And you're right, hospitality has always been a tradition of the religious orders. But these days they've been forced to make it more of a business, I think, because mm -hmm. in many cases the religious orders are, are left with these huge complexes where there are numerous, in some cases, hundreds and hundreds of empty rooms. And to me it just seems to be a smart thing to do, you know, to put in some ensuite bathrooms and try and attract travellers. Trish, when you're checking into a convent or a monastery, do you feel like you're you're dealing with Mother Superior and are you surrounded by monks chanting, or is it something that they hire people to run for them? Uh, in some cases, they do. I mean, there's an order that you've probably heard of called Carmelites, and they're an enclosed order. And I've noticed that they have, throughout Europe, a lot of convent guest houses. When I stayed in one in Rome recently, the nuns moved to the top floor of the building, mm -hmm. and they have a small hospitality company running the accommodation section. So in cases like that, you actually don't even see the nuns. Mm -hmm. But then I'm thinking of another convent in Rome called the Casa di Santa Brigitta, where, where the nuns have a really hands-on role in running the guest house, and they serve breakfast, they serve lunch, they serve dinner. I'm sure they could run a five-star hotel, actually. They have those unique... Uh scarfs with the band on them. They do, yes. Have you been there? I love that place, Casa Santa Brigitta, yeah. And you step yes. in and it's like stepping into another world and these women are so peaceful and so oh, gentle. Aren't they amazing? And so loving and they kind of, they don't walk, they glide. And you go through this polished marble interior and you feel yes. like you've found an oasis in the middle of crusty medieval Rome. That's right. And you know, I had a lovely experience there when I stayed there. I, I wanted a taxi and I said to the, the sister on reception, oh, should I just walk out onto the road and, and wave one down? And she said, don't worry, I'll get one for you. And sort of in this flurry of white robe, she strode out down the steps onto the footpath. And after a few seconds, she stood out on the road and pointed at this taxi that was coming towards us. Uh. And of course, the taxi driver did exactly as he was told and came in and pulled up near the footpath. And this was followed by a very animated conversation between the two. And after they'd finished, she came over to me and she said, now, I've told him which way to go. It'll cost you 14 euro. Don't pay any more because that includes the tip. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said for having a, a sister in a flowing white robe grab your taxi for you and give a little yes, lecture to the cabbie right. before you go. Yes, now, it was a rather unique experience. Now, you know, that place is an example of a very beautiful and very popular convent that rents rooms. Consequently, it will be booked out a lot of times in advance. You need to book these things in advance in a lot of cases. Yes, you do. And it's quite easy to book these days because most of the convent guest houses have websites now, whereas, right. 
you know, 20 years ago they didn't, of course, and so you can book via the website. They've never been known as being on the cutting edge of technology, I think, but they do have computers now. No, and and they're not that good at marketing either. No, that's for sure. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Trish Clark. Trish writes a book called Good Night and God Bless. Actually, two volumes. One listing convents and monasteries renting rooms in Austria, Czech Republic, and Italy, and the other one covering France, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. Now, these places are designed for pilgrims and church groups and so on, but but now they find themselves uh, needing to rent out rooms to travelers. Can anybody just find the email address or the website of these various places and, and just get a hold of them and book a room directly? Yes, you can, Rick. Most of these places now are building websites, and you can generally make the booking by the website. What I always do, I send an, an email, or it used to be a letter, but an email in uh, in English, and then I use the language translator on the web mm-hmm. and translate it into whatever language I need and just send it off. And it's not perfect, but it works. Right. Now, there is a bit more of a language barrier in this area than you might find in hotels because of quirky reasons. I've stayed at a convent in Rome that was built, I believe, for Ukrainian pilgrims, and it is staffed by Brazilian nuns. And they speak Portuguese first, Ukrainian second, Italian third, and English fourth. Uh, you get these kind of quirky mixes because of various orders and their heritage and who their who their mission is to help. And today they're helping travelers in English with emails. So that can be a little bit complicated, but it seems to be uh, getting up to date and and rolling with the times here. Yeah, I, I think they are. They're improving their marketing. They're not quite there yet, but they're getting better. Trish Clark is the author of the Good Night and God Bless series of guidebooks to a wide variety of accommodations at religious institutions in Europe. Her website is goodnightandgodbless.com. You'll find a link to her site in this week's Travel with Rick Steves program notes, and that's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Now, Trish, when you go to a convent or a monastery, what is the etiquette or the the religious kind of trappings. What if somebody is not a Christian? Will they feel welcome there? What about unmarried couples, gay couples, uh, and so on? Yes, well, unmarried couples or and gay couples, I guess I probably would have a reservation there about recommending that they stay at a convent guest house. Because I know most of the convents, I know they just have single beds. Oh, no, I know a convent in Rome, Rick, which has got a king-size bed. With a king-size? Oh, I don't know about that convent. A king-size. <laughs> For years, I just I always <laughs> remarked it. I always was struck by how they've got these little you know, iron-framed single beds, but maybe they've gotten a little more uh, comfortable. Oh, no. Well, well, I guess, you know, there are single beds and single rooms, but yeah. no, they're a little okay. bit more with it these days. But is there a, how much religion is put on you when you stay in one of these places? Well, I have never been pressured to attend a religious service or to go to Mass or to even say a prayer. Never mm-hmm. been pressured at all because it's changed these days. You know, it's unfortunate in some ways, but... It's become more of a business, Rick, yeah. and they need the income. They need right. the, they need the income to stay in their in their homes mm-hmm. and um, and you know just to live and to support the elderly nuns who you know might be in needing care, etc. Right. So that's just they will have private bathrooms now, and they will have less curfews. Most of them do. Yeah. Most of them do. A lot of them are just in amazing locations because historically the church would own the palace for the bishop across the square from the cathedral. And, yes, and now that would be right, rented Rick. out just to pay the rent. Yes. I'm constantly amazed at, at how well these places are located. I mean, and particularly in Rome. I mean, the one I, I was describing at the beginning, that's in the Via Sistina, which you would probably know. It's the street that runs from the Piazza Barberini up to the Spanish Steps. And you climb into your bed and you look and you see behind the whitewash peeking through is a fresco from 500 years ago that was painted there for some bishop or some uh, religious authority, and you're sleeping in the middle of history, in the middle of culture, surrounded by this wonderful environment created by that religious tradition, and it's not very expensive to boot. Now, as you said, a lot of them are in the business for making money now, so they're not really the the cost of youth hostels, but generally, Trish, what would the cost be when you're thinking about in Europe of staying in in a religious institution for accommodations? Well, I, I was looking this up last night, and when I stayed in uh, in a convent in Florence about four years ago, I paid forty euro a night. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at the website last night, and the prices doubled. So it was about eighty euro for a room, a twin bedded room. Two people, probably with breakfast, one hundred and ten dollars. Then, yes, something yeah. like that. So it's not youth hostel prices, but it is the privacy of a hotel. It is a special experience. 
And in a lot of cases, the food is heavenly. Well, it can be. And uh, the convent that you were just talking about in the in the Piazza Farnese is just around the corner from the most amazing restaurant, which you probably know as well, called La Ovive. Have you been there? I don't know about that one, but I, it's a beautiful area. That's the Campo di Fiori. Yes, that's right. It was right near the uh, near the Pantheon, this yeah. restaurant, and it's actually run by nuns. And one thing I like about your book is with each convent or monastery you list, you also talk about things to do and places to eat in that vicinity. Yes. Trish, decades ago, convents were famous for having curfews, like youth hostels. What is the situation for curfews now in convents and monasteries? Yes, I can remember when I stayed in the convent the first time, I had to be in by 10 o'clock, but I didn't really mind because breakfast was served so early that uh, by the time 10 o'clock came around, I was ready for bed anyway. <laughs> but they're more generous these days with curfews, and, uh, and not all of them have curfews either. But the ones that are run strictly by nuns uh, generally do have an 11 o'clock, 11.30 p.m. curfew. But where there's a hospitality company involved in running the guest house, of course, it just operates like a hotel. And I think we should remind travelers that, you know, it is what it is. You don't check into a convent if you plan to be out clubbing all night long or if you plan to make a lot of noise in your room or, or party. It's, this is a different environment, and we need to be respectful of that and, and, and accept the parameters that come with the opportunity to spend less and experience more by staying in a convent. Trish's website, to know more about her work, lists convents all over the world, not just in the places of Europe that we've been talking about, goodnightandgodbless.com. And the guidebook is Good Night, God Bless. And Trish Clark, thanks for introducing so many travelers to a wonderful alternative to your standard hotel. Well, thank you, Rick. I saw raindrops on my window, joy is like Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Special thanks to the BBC in London and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Sydney for their help this week. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.